Well, I have the uh, privilege this morning of introducing, uh, for the last time, a man who 35 years ago preached his first sermon at Deer Creek Church uh, at Ken Carroll Middle School. This man is a loving pastor, a faithful servant of God's word, a loving husband, loving father, and a personal mentor to me. Uh, Would you join me for the last time in introducing uh, Dwayne Corey? can't believe we're doing this again. <laughs> Service number two. Oh, uh, boy. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Uh, this has been, for Holly and myself, just truly an incredible weekend. Um, Friday night, we had a retirement party, a little one, and uh, <laughs> it was amazing, really. Uh, many of you were there. And we're thankful for that. Uh, We even had some people come from out of town. Uh, Josh Burns, uh, who was our director of children's ministry for several years. Josh drove up from uh, Arkansas. And uh, when Josh came into the children's ministry, if you know Josh, he brought all of that love, all of that compassion, all of that care for children and their families right into the ministry. It's good to have you here, Josh. Uh, we have Mike and Ann Laurie. Mike and Ann were uh, youth pastors uh, many years ago now, and uh, they were with us for about seven years. And uh, when they were here, God just caused that ministry to flourish in so many wonderful ways. And it's fun to get to hang out with Mike and Ann. We have Joseph and Sheila McCormick, which many of you know. Uh, and Joseph and Sheila, I, it's hard to say what Joseph did. <laughs> Because he did so many different things when he was here. Uh, Tim corrected me. I think I said in the last service, Joseph and Sheila were here for four years. It was closer to eight. Uh, But, you know, hey, time goes quickly when you're having fun. Um, And Joseph was our student pastor. And under him, the student ministry flourished. And and then Joseph and Sheila uh, were both uh, serving the children uh, ministry uh, and student ministry. uh, it just he, he wore a lot of hats when he was here. He was one of the teachers up here in the pulpit, and uh, there's so many things for which we're thankful to those two and just love the relationship that we have with them. We have uh, Jim and Cindy Lisenby who drove in from Texas. Jim was one of our three uh, first elders, and uh, they just wanted to be here and be a part of this celebration or uh, maybe just be here to say, finally, finally, you're, you're getting out of here, so I don't know. But the truth is this. The truth is that these people are people that Holly and I really deeply love and appreciate. People that uh, I I learned the church had to bribe with money to get them to come, uh, by the way. (laughs) And uh, their being here, though, helped, helped make Friday night an evening that we will absolutely never forget. An evening that was such a, a blessing to us, an evening for which we are grateful And then this morning, this morning we shift gears from what we did on Friday night, and we are actually celebrating the 35th anniversary of the church. It was actually exactly 35 years ago this week that Deer Creek had its very first worship service. We met in Ken Carroll Middle School. You saw a picture of that. 
Uh, that was the time when we set up every morning and we tore down in the afternoon every, every Sunday morning. And that went on for like three years. And uh, after that, we leased space in a strip mall on the northeast corner of Pierce and Ken Carroll. That was, uh, I believe, 1990. And we were literally an underground church. We were in a basement there. And uh, you had to be smarter than the average person to just find us. And uh, that was quite a, a place, but that was a blessing that God gave us. We were there a number of years. We eventually bought this little four-acre plot of ground that we're on right now. That was 1995. And while all of that was going on, uh, in the beginning of 1996, uh, we also had the privilege uh, the honor, the opportunity to help three other churches get started. We helped Skyview Presbyterian Church get started in Centennial. We helped Redeemer Presbyterian Church get started in Parker. Uh, we helped Cornerstone Presbyterian Church get started in Castle Rock. And at the same time, 92 families in this church committed just under $700,000. And with that seed money and alone, we began to build this building. And we moved into this building in March of 1998. And all of that, every bit of that, leading up to that moment in 1998, every bit of that was change after change after change after change. And all of that change represented God's work, what God was doing. God answering prayers, God providing the right people, the right resources at exactly the right time to accomplish his purposes. God, we got to see bring people to himself. We got to see him move and connect people, put them together so that they were like iron, sharpening iron, helping each other grow, helping each other follow Jesus. We saw God equip people to serve one another. God raised up small group leaders and student ministry leaders and officers. I just mentioned Jim Lizenby. Well, John Jewey was the other uh, uh, elder, first elder, and John Medbury was the third. Uh, God raised up staff. God raised up church planters through the years. You name it, God gave us everything we needed needed to follow and to serve him. And now today, that same God is doing exactly that same thing. I found out Friday that uh, we just paid off our building loan. Uh, this is remarkable to me. Um, what the, uh, the loan that we had, the remainder of it, was costing us about $3,000 a month, something like that, $36,000 a year. And a lot of churches, when you would pay off a loan like that, of course, would be relieved and be thankful and would think, you know, let's take that money now that we're not having to pay off a loan and let's put it in a, let's put it in a safe place. Let's sit on that. That will increase the security that we have. But this church, the session, the leaders of this church decided that because our, our reserve fund uh, was solid uh, because uh, we, we are currently meeting budget and more, they decided that we should use that money to plant more churches. Every bit of it. And so behind my back, without my knowing, <laughs> they actually took on two more church planters. In addition to the two we have here right now that are residents, in addition to the two we have in India, in addition to the two we have in the UK, uh, they've taken on two more. Craig and Amy Anderson, I, I, I look forward to the day when you'll get to meet them. Uh, Craig is a wonderful young man, a gifted, a godly young man planning a church uh, in Galashiels, Scotland. Uh, Daniel Williams is planting a church in Chester, 
UK, Chester, England. And uh, these young men just love the Lord. And the soil is pretty hard there. And uh, we learn from them as they labor. And hopefully they can learn a thing or two from us. And, and we get to partner with these men in ministry because of the vision and the faith and the trust and the willingness to take risks of the leadership of this church. And I think it's amazing the faith that this session and the leaders here are evidencing. And I think it's amazing. I love the fact that this church has a kingdom vision. I love the fact that, that this, this church is thinking outside itself, how to impact, how to spread the kingdom, the word of God, the gospel in places and in ways that are not just somehow self-serving. I love this church. In April, I'm going to, I think, have the opportunity, it looks like it's shaping up this way, to make a trip to uh, South Africa. And that, too, will be for the purpose of exploring uh, church planting opportunities there. They want to partner with us. And, again, we'll learn from them. They'll learn from us. We're talking about and praying right now about charter, uh, a starting a, Hispanic, a, a Spanish-speaking church in the Hispanic community here in the Denver metro area. We hope that will be the beginning of a movement. Not just one church, but a beginning of planting numerous churches in the uh, Hispanic community of Denver. Now, as you all know, I am formally and officially stepping out uh, of this position of senior pastor here. I don't know if you caught it, but Daniel made it clear that I was done after today. Did you notice that? <laughs> so, but he's right. He's right. And God has actually allowed us to be in a process a really good process for the last four years, a process designed and executed to perfection, I might add, by someone called Tim Rehnquist. He's a friend to me who sticks closer than a brother. And this process that we have followed for the last four years, God has used to raise up a, a young man, a really young man, Looks like he's about 25, but actually he's the same age that I was when I came to plant the church. And over the last four years, I've come to deeply respect and love and appreciate him. He has been a delight to do ministry with. And I can honestly say I, I couldn't be more joyous over the fact that I get to know I've had the opportunity to work with. I, I so approve of the man who's going to be taking my place. Daniel, Daniel Nealon. I wholeheartedly believe that God will use him along with the rest of the team that's here at Deer Creek, Daniel, Tim, Chad, Aaron, the whole staff, the elders, the deacons, this congregation to do truly marvelous, marvelous things when it comes to doing what a church is supposed to do, which is make disciples. And to do that largely through, we believe, planting churches. In fact, just for the record, it was five years ago we set some goals. Some of you will remember this. This was pre-COVID, right? Uh, we talked about the REACH initiative. We wanted to reach up and reach in and reach out, we said. And you've heard this mantra over and over for the last five years. And now we're at the end of that time. It's five years later. And honestly, it is amazing. 
It's absolutely amazing what God has done. In 2017, the leader of this, uh, leaders of this church got together. We prayed. We believed. We sought God. Lord, what do you want us to do? We know you want us to do uh, some wonderful things in the Denver metro area and far beyond. And so that fall, we launched this five-year plan, this thing we called the REACH initiative. We felt called to plant more churches. We felt called to reach new people with the gospel, with the good news about who Jesus is. We felt called to connect more people in community. We felt called to serve those in this community in the name uh, and for the purpose of introducing people to Jesus. And so for reaching up, we set a goal. We decided we were going to start a third service uh, on Sunday morning, and we believed that that would allow us, therefore, more seating capacity. We could get over 600 to join us on a Sunday morning, and we were actually on track with that goal when something happened, something called COVID. And it's just so interesting. I love this about our God. He can be quite ironic sometimes. Um, we did go to three services. I don't know if you remember, but we, we had three services on Sunday morning. And uh, the chairs were all spread out so far apart. You had to you know, yell to hear somebody. And uh, only 100 of us could gather on a Sunday morning with three services during that social distancing period. And I just thought at that time, looking back, I thought, this is really quite ironic. We, we achieved the goal. We're, we're at three services so that we can have 100 people meet here. And uh, I think God was chuckling uh, at that time. We set a goal for reaching in as well. Uh, we felt that our congregation... Uh, really uh, needed a new, a different dynamic in it to bring health, spiritual health. Uh, and we, we decided that we wanted at least 80% of our congregation involved in small groups, groups that would gather to pray, that would gather, gather to study, that would gather to do life together, to learn, to follow Jesus together. And, and when we set that goal, uh, we began to, of course, work intently towards that And really, it was amazing how this happened. Almost right away, we went from about, I don't know, six to 12 groups to 60. And we had over 90% of the congregation involved in small groups, which is still the case today. And we're deeply thankful for this, thankful that you bought in. You believe in this too. We also set goals to pay off our loan, which as I said, I found out, you know, behind my back, they did that. Uh, we also did some other things that really desperately needed doing. Things the, like finishing facility projects, put a playground in, you know, knocked a door through the wall out there. It made some improvements and some upgrades downstairs in the children's ministry, lobby remodel, sanctuary lighting uh, changes, upstairs bathroom remodel, uh, sound system makeovers, video system, all of this stuff was long, long, long overdue. And all of that stuff is done and paid for, I might add. So we set some goals for reaching out as well. Uh, we wanted to plant two churches during this time by now. Uh, here's the long and the short of that. We have planted one in 2019, right before COVID. You can imagine what kind of ride that's been for that church plant, but it's healthy. It's, it's thriving today. Made it through COVID. That's Elevate Hope. Um, we, uh, we, currently have two church planting residents, as most of you know, uh, J.P. Watson and his family and uh, David and Jennifer Rapp and their family. Uh, and we will be planting, launching one of those in 2023 and another in 2024. We did something else that you just don't do if you're a Presbyterian church. Uh, we, we felt convicted that we ought to pray for people to profess faith in Jesus. 
I know that's shocking, but uh, <laughs> we did. We felt convicted. And we knew this was random. Uh, we didn't want to be silly about this, but we thought, what would be a number of people professing faith in Jesus that's ridiculous? That, you know, no Presbyterian church could ever see that happen. So we, we, did, we picked a number. Now, there's no magic to this. We just felt, uh, let's pick the number 100. Let's, let's have 100 people profess faith in Jesus. <laughs> and we weren't but about two years into this, and we had had 135 people profess faith in Jesus. And then we, we kind of quit counting during COVID. And, and if I could get all of you to admit that you professed Jesus this morning, we could really up that number. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I, we're amazed. We're amazed, really, that, that God exceeded our expectation. We, uh, we set a goal for outreach. We wanted to do 100,000, I'm sorry, 10,000, slightly less, 10,000 hours of service in the community in the name of Jesus to bring glory to Jesus and to help people that needed help. At present, I'm told we have 11,190 hours. We exceeded that. Now, I only share these things with you for this reason. It's all just to say that, you see, God provided our needs every step of the way this last five years. God exceeded our expectations, and he did all of that through the ever-changing, unpredictable world of COVID. Go figure. Honestly, again, words cannot begin to express my gratitude to our good God. For the last five years, not to mention the last 35, all years of change, I might add. God has been so good. Appropriately, this morning, our subject is going to be the subject of gratitude. Uh, and here's the deal. Uh, when, when change is happening in our lives, and change always is happening, when change is happening in our lives, be it something we really enjoy and celebrate or something we find very difficult, very challenging, uh, something we don't understand, when change is happening in our lives, how we look at that change, the perspective we have is of great importance. It actually is. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Thessalonica. This was a church undergoing change. Lots of difficulties that they were experiencing that they didn't want to experience. And Paul writes to that church and he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He wrote to a, another church that he had ministered, uh, was ministering to, the church of Ephesus. And he said, make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything. To God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there was another church not far away, a church in Colossae. And Paul expands on this idea. This is what he wrote to them. He said, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see this, this thankfulness. This gratitude is actually uh, vitally important for individuals. It's vitally important for churches who want spiritual vitality, who want emotional health, who want to give God honor. And so today we set aside a whole Sunday just to do exactly that, to say thank you, thank you, God. 
Now, whether you've been here at Deer Creek for 35 years, which a few of us have been, or just 35 days, I hope that what we reflect on today and the things that we consider uh, will be helpful to you. And before we go any further, I better pray. Father God, it's this time again in our service and uh, it's this time where we study together and we reflect together and we, we really want to open up our hearts and our minds to you. We ask you to be our teacher. We ask you to convict us where that is needed and encourage us where that is needed. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you that you do, your spirit does, your word does speak to us and challenge us and change us. This we ask you to do in the very precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me kind of tell you where I'm coming from on this subject. Uh, here's a fundamental assumption that I'm making. Gratitude. Gratitude will not come from you making more acquisitions. Gratitude will not come from you accomplishing more things. Gratitude will not come from you acquiring more comforts or having more relational or recreational opportunities. Gratitude will come from you gaining more awareness of God's presence and God's goodness in your life. So if you uh, live your life not very aware of God and not deeply aware of his constant goodness to you, you won't be a very grateful person. There's a Christian writer by the name of Robert Roberts. I don't know what his parents were thinking, but he's a professor of uh, ethics at Baylor University. And uh, he says it's important to know what gratitude is. He says gratitude is always a perception of the good. And this is why I, I can't just manufacture gratitude by my willpower. A lot of people do try that. It doesn't usually work. Not very well, not very long. Gratitude, you see, is a byproduct of a way of seeing things, a perspective that a person has on life. And for someone who follows Jesus, gratitude flows out of a deepening awareness of who God is, what God is like, and what God is doing. To be grateful, I need to see that the things happening in my life, be they good or be they difficult or be they bad, those things are in the hand of God. He's doing something with all of that. It's the perception that David had in Psalm 103. David says these words he, and wrote these words. He said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. That's actually a phrase in the Old Testament that is covenantal. Uh, it's the, the language that God uses over and over to describe his love for his people. It's actually marriage language. You know, when you get married, you make all these promises. You enter into a covenant with that person. And uh, this is God. This is God's covenantal language, covenant promises. He says, uh, uh, again, uh, don't forget the benefits. Uh, the one who forgives you, the one who redeems your life from the pit, the one who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You see, David knows that all he has received, good and bad, God has given him or gotten him through and taught him in the process. 
all the while loving him with a steadfast love, a covenantal, a marriage-like love and mercy. And God does this all the time, friends, all the time, not just occasionally. Unfortunately, I forget that all the time. Unfortunately, I lose perspective. I become blind to God's benefits too much of the time. Big things, little things alike. Sunshine, rain, fresh air to breathe, being alive, having friends, having workers with whom I love to work, having children, having grandchildren, having food on the table or clothes on my back or health or freedoms or a church that loves me. I can take all of those things for granted in a heartbeat. Or, or worse, I can think that somehow I manufactured them, right? Or my cleverness has brought these things my way, right? Or worse, I deserve all of these things. In which case, I'm not really grateful at all. I mean, after all, I think, you know, I earned these. Of course I have them. I, I, I produce them. I'm entitled to these things. You see, gratitude actually requires that I have a certain perspective, that I have an abiding awareness that my God is my benefactor. He is the one who does all these good things for me. For me to be grateful, I must believe that benefits are coming my way, not randomly, or certainly not because I earned them. Random means it's luck of the draw, right? One minute good things happen, uh, the next minute bad things happen. And if I think I earned these things that are coming my way, well, then I'm just thinking I'm just getting what I deserve, you see. But if somebody is in control, I mean really in control, if a benefactor who has good intentions toward me is always at work to give me what I need and even to help me get through the really difficult things, all the things, I, if I'm being honest, I don't understand, all the things I can't fix, all the things I, I struggle to handle, well then, if I have that perspective, you see, that actually changes everything. That requires me, that stimulates me to be grateful, grateful to God. It's no surprise to anyone who reads the Bible that the writers of the Bible are convinced to the core that there is this great benefactor, you see. Uh, James, Jesus' brother, makes this fabulous observation. This is a familiar passage of Scripture to many or most of us. He says this, he says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And you read that, and if you think about it for a moment, it causes you to sort of go, wow, Really? I mean, you're saying every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's an interesting phrase too, Father of lights, because really it's, a, it's an Old Testament way of saying a God who is good. The Father of lights is the Father of good things, not evil things, not dark things. He's good. He's a good Father. So, so you're saying that even when time after time after time, I'm largely unaware and I'm largely ungrateful, you're saying that even then God is the giver of every good gift I receive? And the short answer is, yeah. It's exactly, it's exactly what I'm saying. It's exactly what Scripture teaches. We are all beneficiaries of the benefits of a good, good 
God, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge him or not, whether we are grateful or not, God's goodness is pouring forth all the time. It's something theologians refer to as common grace. It's something God does for everyone. Here is something else we really need to consider. This common grace of God is something that ought to make all of us extremely grateful. All of these good gifts that we receive, we did not earn them. We do not deserve them. We are not entitled to them. And that right there is the sad and serious wrinkle in all of this. Because you see, the default mode of the sinful human heart is that of entitlement. It's entitlement. The belief that this gift, this benefit, this thing, it's rightfully mine. I deserve this. I am owed this. And here's the deal. The more I think I deserve something, usually, usually, most often, the less grateful I am for it. You know, we wonder how in our world do we keep getting more and more and more good things, more stuff, more comfort, more things to enjoy, but we keep being less and less and less grateful. Well, this is why. What we're talking about right now, this is why my sinful mind convinces me that anything I want, I'm entitled to. And if I'm not getting what I want, somebody in the universe must be messing up. And so they owe me. And just kind of an aside here, because this is the last sermon Daniel's ever going to let me preach, I can say anything. (laughs) Um. You know, stuff that's become a kind of a popular topic these days is trying to think about and analyze and figure out what critical race theory is. Certainly something that's a hot topic right now in our culture, uh, just things about gender fluidity and gender identity and all of these kinds of things. I would actually argue, and Daniel will have to sort it out later, but I would actually argue that these things, that mindsets around those things are directly connected to this whole subject that we're talking about, this subject of gratitude or entitlement kinds of things. It's the idea that there are people presently in power who have control or people who are popular or people who are wealthy or people who are living the good life, but I'm not one of those people. And I should be. I don't have the things I deserve. I am entitled to these things. Therefore, you must give them to me. And the point that I'm trying to make is, is this, it's, it, is that there's nothing new. That, that, that's not a new idea, by the way. But, but the world we live in kind of runs on these basic sinful assumptions and always has. And that's why there is so little gratitude, so little uh, sense of uh, being satisfied in the world. Especially uh, there's so little gratitude specifically as we think about gratitude towards God. And just so we're very clear on this, ingratitude in general is not good. But ingratitude specifically toward God is actually a terrible sin. Paul says this, he says it's the mark of a life being lived in opposition to God when you live a life that's not grateful. Paul says uh, uh, in Romans 1.21, familiar passage, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, that's a picture right there of a God-less way of life. 
People not glorifying God, people not acknowledging God, people not giving thanks to their benefactor. And consequently, what happens? Well, their thinking becomes futile. You know what futility is? Futility is being incapable of producing any useful result. And that's almost descriptive of parts of our culture these days. And we tend to think that we are entitled. I am owed a good job. I am owed good air. I am owed good health. You owe me a good family, good friends, good life, good things, good fortune. Of course that's what I deserve. Anything less than that, I'm getting ripped off. It's the opposite of Psalm 103 where David says, forget not all his benefits who satisfies your desires with good things. Do not forget him. The Bible actually has a a word, a concept that describes that kind of way of life. It's a grumbling kind of way of life. Paul says grumbling is the quintessential mindset of people who do not know God. And here's what's kind of odd, maybe kind of ironic. A lot of grumbling goes on in churches. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, other churches, not ours, but a lot of grumbling, a lot of grumbling goes on in churches. And when people are grumbling, that is very dangerous to the life, to the health, to the vitality of a church. Grumbling gets our attention clearly away from or off of God and more onto some circumstance or some person we don't like. Grumbling means that we have forgotten who is in charge and who is in control. And this is a serious problem. I'll show you how seriously God takes this. Paul heard about some complaining spirit in the church that was there in Corinth. And so he wrote them a letter and he's reminding them about how God dealt with Israel many years earlier. Israel had grumbled at Mount Sinai. You know this story. God has brought Israel up and out of Egypt. He's delivered them from bondage. He's been providing food and water and protection for them. He's been guiding them through the wilderness. He's been leading them to the promised land. He even gives them his law, his commandments. But the people of Israel are grumbling and grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. They were not grateful. And so the apostle Paul warns the Corinthians with this. And this is what he says. He says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. The destroyer is a uh, either it's the, uh, an embodiment of God himself or an angel that God has sent to be that destroyer. You see, grumbling in gratitude led to some severe discipline, even death for some. I, one of the things I kind of sort of wanted to do this morning was send everybody out with a little rubber serpent just as a reminder, you know. And I thought, that's my last sermon. I'm not going to send them out with a snake, but... Um, <laughs> But maybe it would have been a good idea. Maybe it would remind us. There are consequences to grumbling, sometimes very serious ones. You know, when Jesus called his disciples to come follow him, he was, of course, their rabbi. He taught them many things in the course of his three-year earthly ministry. Part of what he modeled, part of what he taught them was to be grateful to God for absolutely everything. That really is the only appropriate response when you understand how things really are. Well, how are they, Duane? Well, here's how they are. James told us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
See, we know that Jesus succeeded in teaching and modeling this to his disciples, uh, this whole thing about gratitude. How do we know that? Well, because we look at the lives of his followers and we look at the things they wrote. The Apostle Paul raises this subject of thankfulness and gratitude more than 20 times in his epistles. And several times in his letters, he, he just boldly commands us to give thanks. So always give thanks to God the Father for everything. Uh, where, where did Paul come up with that? Where did Paul learn that? Where did Paul come to believe? How did he come to believe that was important? Well, he learned this from Jesus. Be grateful for everything, even imperfect people, imperfect circumstances, imperfect churches. Again, our job is not to try to make ourselves feel grateful, as some people do. Gratitude, again, is a byproduct. It's a way of seeing the world and the circumstances around you. It comes from realizing that there are certain spiritual realities that are just always, always true. Like, for, existence, or for example, the existence of a really good, good God. That, that's just a spiritual reality, whether I acknowledge it, believe it, or embrace it or not. Spiritual reality is like that this good God is always working a good purpose, even moving things towards a conclusion that's going to be good. This God is always providing for me just as he provides for his church. He's always loving me just as he loves his church, his people. He is always forgiving me just as he forgives his church. He's always growing me just as he is always growing his church. You see, as we train ourselves to live in that reality, you see, that's how we grow. My job is to place my mind in the presence of God in this moment, right here, right now, and to surrender myself to him and be grateful to him that he is with me, that he is working. Be grateful to him for who he is, for what he knows, which is infinitely more than me, and for what he does even if I don't understand my immediate circumstances. My job is to walk with a posture that says, God, I am thankful you are here with me right now. You are totally in control of all things. You raise up one kingdom, you bring another one, you tear another one down. You and you alone are in charge, not me. Therefore, I can be relieved. I don't have to carry the weight of the world on my shoulders. Thank you, God, for giving me life. Thank you, God, for giving me family, for giving me friends. Thank you, God, for your wisdom. Thank you for always, always in every situation being with me. Thank you for the strength that only you can provide, only you give. Thank you for this family, your family, this thing called the church. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, my Savior. You see, if I, if I wait for a perfect people or perfect circumstances to be grateful? Well, you tell me, will I ever be grateful? Of course not. I will never be grateful because I am not seeing life realistically. And if I don't bless God as David did in Psalm 103, if I don't bless God in the midst of hardship, I'm in danger of only being thankful when I get what I want. And when I do that, my conditions for gratitude just get higher and higher and I become more and more an ungrateful person and distanced 
from God. You see, being, being transformed, being discipled by God means I gain this kind of perspective. I gather this kind of wisdom on life, on my circumstances, on my situation. I learn to see good ways in which God is at work even in the midst of bad or difficult times. It's precisely Paul's very familiar observation in Romans 8, 28. Most of you know it. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That's a remarkable statement. Only God knows for sure what will turn out to produce good in me or good for you. Only God knows that. A lot of times I go through things. There have been times over the years when me or members of my family, we've gone through some pretty difficult things, things that were hard, uh, things that were painful, things that were bad, things that were challenging, things that just brought about all kinds of change and upheaval. And, and uh, I, I actually wished I didn't have to go through any of it. And then years later, I reflect back, I look back, and I begin to see, oh, oh, God, I, I can kind of see some of what you were doing. I see how you worked in me. I see how you worked in my family. I see how you worked in my church through this change or this difficulty. I didn't understand it, not at the time, but I see now you, you really were growing me. You were teaching me. You were loving me. You were getting me through it. Thank you, Father, for loving me even in my struggle. So the Apostle Paul, following Jesus, says that we bless, we thank God at all times. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul had learned to be grateful because he had learned something about the good, good heart of Jesus. And he wanted us, he wanted all of uh, the foes who would follow Jesus to encounter life that way. Seeing every minute of it, every aspect of it, knowing that God is with us, God is good, God cares, God loves, God delights in us. So be grateful, Paul was saying. You know, the greatest evidence, this, you all know this, and you all could guess where this sermon is going. We're about halfway through. Uh, the, the, the greatest evidence of God's goodness and his care and his provision and his love for us is, of course, Jesus. It's Jesus. It's God the Father sending his son. Uh, in the book of Common Prayer, there's a beautiful prayer that expresses this so, so wonderfully. Uh, it says this, it says, Almighty God, Father of all mercies. What a description that is of God, the Father of all mercies. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, all the blessings of this life. But above all, above all, for your inestimable love in sending us your son, Jesus Christ, our redeemer. So yeah, sure, we, we should be, we are grateful. We're, we're grateful for our homes, our friends, our, our cars, our money, if you've got any, our success when it comes, your job, if you have one, your church. But far, far, far more grateful are we for Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes these words in Ephesians chapter two. He says, but because of his great love for us, God who is, get this, another description, rich in mercy. God who is rich 
in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us uh, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that, this is important, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you even begin to grasp what that means? There's a great book that I just finished reading with a, a group uh, in a small group. It's by uh, Dane Ortland. It's called uh, Gentle and Lowly. High, highly recommend it to you. It's a very thought-provoking book. And uh, he comments on this passage in Ephesians 2 that I just read. And th these are his observations on that. He says this, he says, you know, what that means, what Ephesians, what Paul is saying there, he says, what that means is that one day God is going to walk us through the wardrobe into Narnia. That, that means something to many of you. And we will stand there paralyzed with joy, wonder, amazement, and relief. It means that as we stand there, we will never be scolded for the sins of this life, never looked at askance, never told, enjoy this, but remember you don't deserve it. The very point of heaven and eternity is to enjoy his grace and kindness. That's what Paul said in Ephesians. And if the point of heaven is to show the immeasurable or incomparable riches of his grace in kindness, then we are safe. Because the one thing we fear will keep us out, which is our sin. That one thing can only heighten the spectacle of God's grace and kindness. If his grace and kindness is immeasurable, then our failures can never outstrip his grace. Somebody give me an amen. amen. And Dane Ortland asked this question, so, so what, what, what do we do with that? What, what, what do we say to that? What is better than that? What do we do? And, and he offers up two things that we must do. And I love how he does this. The first thing he says is, go to Jesus with gratitude. Man, oh man. Go to Jesus with gratitude. But there's a second thing we must do. And uh, he says that is C number one. And he's right. He's exactly right. Because you see, it's Jesus' matchless life lived for you. And it's Jesus' unrivaled teachings given to you. And it's Jesus' sacrificial death applied to you. And his triumphant resurrection power poured into your life. And his promise to return for you. All of that, you see, is given to us in Jesus. All of that is symbolized for us here on this table. And because of that, we say thank you 
Thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We are truly grateful, not just for these past 35 years, but for who you are. And you, who you have always, always been. And will continue to be. We say together, blessed are you, O Lord. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a wedding feast. And what just happens at a wedding feast are those vows we mentioned earlier. Promises are made. (laughs) The one great difference uh, about this wedding feast and, and this covenant relationship that's created is that Jesus actually keeps his word, every word of it. Jesus is perfectly faithful to us. We all struggle and fail at keeping our promises one to another, but not Jesus. And uh, he came to seek and to save the lost. That's you and me. He came to make propitiation. That's a theological word. Payment for our sin. So that the wrath of the Father would be poured out on him. So that the wrath of the Father would not be poured out on us. In the upper room with his disciples, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body And I don't know if you've ever thought on or fully received the magnitude of these words, broken for you, broken for you. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. That's what we're celebrating in this meal. God's covenant faithfulness to us to remit our sins, to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we invite you to partake of this meal uh, with one condition. You must come to this meal in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, believing that he has paid for your sins. That's the condition. And if that's you this morning, we invite you to partake in this meal with us. It's a family meal. Jesus is our host. We are the recipients of his good grace, his good benefits. Pray with me. Father, we set these elements apart for their special purpose. They remind us, they uh, signify to us the work of Jesus Christ, your son, who you sent for us. And we are thankful. We are grateful for your work, Jesus. May we come to this table with our sin, but in so doing, receive that forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.